previously on Something Who. I'm Richard and we're back to discuss another couple of Doctor Who stories. First we're going to talk about Second Doctor Tale The Mind Robber from Season 6. And after that we'll chew over 11th Doctor story Amy's Choice from Series 5. And uh, with me to talk about dreams, fiction and the surreal... We have science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening. We've got graphic designer and, and now podcaster with uh, Dalek 63-828, to Gav. Good evening. And Big Finish author and Missing Episodes podcaster, Paul. Hello. And now, on to part two of our discussion... So, next up, Amy's Choice, uh, written by Simon Nye and directed by Catherine Morshead. Morshead? I don't know. Amy's pregnant, Roy's got a ponytail, and the doctor's bored. Yeah, uh, initial thoughts? I really enjoy it. I enjoyed it then, and I enjoy it now. Yes. I'd forgotten how much it lent into the relationship aspect. I'd I'd forgotten that, and that is fundamentally the crux of the episode, so it's a bit mm. stupid of me to have forgotten. But um, I really like it. I really like the setup. And uh, it seems an obvious solution, but it keeps you guessing. Mm. introduces us to the pregnant world first, so that when it flips back to the TARDIS, we're, we're slightly on the back foot. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyable 40-something minutes of TV. Yes, it was always one of my favourites of that series. And I seem to remember it was a bit overlooked at the time because didn't have old monsters and wasn't part of a big arc or anything and just looked disposable, I think, to some viewers, but not to Gavin and me. Mm. Was, he, um, was it trailed? Was it trailed with only clips of the fake village dream world it's to encourage... Because because we've been coming, got used to the idea that the Doctor's coming and going. I got this vague yeah. memory that um, we got used to the idea that it might be time jumps and that he was coming and going in their lives, so that that was supposed to set up the idea that it might be plausible. Yeah. Right. It, it skipped five years, especially you know, especially at the beginning of the series, there lots of, there was lots of that. Yeah. Um, right? Well, I mean, I, th- I think that's why we were, why it successfully sold us that trick, because the 11th hour is predicated on the idea yeah. that, that it's one big time jump, so the fact that he would do it again doesn't yeah. seem very improbable. Stephen Moffat sort of plays mm. faster and looser, I think, with our comfort zones in that respect jumping a, around the time. It's a nice misdirect. The Doctor explains it at the end that we don't think we've been, the Dreamborn has encouraged us to think that it's the choice between two dreams. Yes. Yeah. But of course that's not what the Dreamborn has done. That's what Simon and I have Spoiler alert. Do you ever give spoiler alerts on this podcast? Just blow I don't the know. ending there. It, it, it feels <laughs> like 20, 2010 is long enough ago. I've probably broken the etiquette of, dis- of discussing old stories. No matter how old they are, you're still supposed to go through them methodically rather than <laughs> make your first discussion point the the climax. <laughs> but I don't care. Well, that's how everyone else does it. Giles, any initial thoughts about Amy's Choice? Um, yeah, it's. I probably had fallen into the thing of seeing it as a bit of a oh. a bit of an also van maybe in in series five. It wasn't absolutely on my top top rank. I, I can't honestly recall whether I have seen it since transmission but uh, you know to borrow the, the something who classic line but yeah no i thoroughly <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed it and i know I, I enjoyed it at the time and 
and I enjoyed it this time and I, I found there was there was much more to it than than I remembered yes yeah it wasn't you know compared to some of the others I guess it didn't didn't strike me as a tour de force for Matt Smith in the way that some of the other series five stuff that we've been watching occasionally or you know some of the some of the stuff we've gone bloody hell he's good mm. it didn't it didn't absolutely you know, leap out at me in that regard on this one but it, you know which isn't to isn't to say he's not he's not perfectly good but it's just not didn't strike me as an absolutely outstanding performance but yeah toby jones is fantastic of course mm-hmm. and the the other thing that really made me wonder is yeah I mean, does anyone know how much of this is simon nye and <laughs> and if it's all yeah i i i don't want to yeah i don't want to cast aspersions but it, it just sort of begs the question of if this is all Simon Knight, why the hell? Why the hell haven't we had him back? Mm. <laughs> because it's... I've never heard anything either way, but mm. it doesn't feel like him, mm. and he's never written anything else like this mm. since. I suppose there's sitcom, so... there's sitcomy elements to it, aren't there? There's certain bits that could be. He's 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 the men behaving badly guy, right? Yes, yeah, yes. So yeah. He, the the connection is at Hartswood, isn't it? The, the yes, because it was a Bell Virtue uh, production. Yeah, yeah, right. So sorry, I shouldn't call. It. Yeah, the the virtue production. You ask writers to contribute when you're you're confident in them, mm. and it's easy for us to forget now what a, a absolute giant of television Men Behaving Badly was mm. in the certainly the late night mid mid to late nineties. Yeah, and he single handedly wrote that year upon year, and he is a good writer, and yet it's still. You know, it feels like a really left field choice in terms of a, a Doctor Who writer, but mm. the outcome is a terrific episode. Mm. As to how much he wrote versus rewrites, <laughs> the script was delivered the day before the read through, and the read through was the day before shooting started. Blimey. <laughs> so okay. I don't know what you want to take from that. But uh, I think Simon Nye is probably likely to have delivered it earlier than that. Hmm. But hmm. you know that that all that can tell us is that if if Stephen Moffat wanted to do a pass over it, he did it late in the day. But that doesn't mean that he it was a page one rewrite or anything like that. Hmm. I mean Simon Nye's certainly happy to be on camera talking about it and talking about his concepts hmm. and why he made old people scary and and all that. Mm-hmm. He's done interviews and. That happens when when people's work does get paid mm. one rewrites and they're just consumer professionals. So, you know, we're keen to infer things, but I don't know. I mean, there is it's a funny script, mm. yes. but then Stephen Moffat writes funny scripts, yeah. so yeah. you know, no deduction can be made there. I would say, I mean, it's hard, but I would say that it feels more like Simon Nye's comedy than Stephen Moffat's, mm. which tends to be a bit sort of wittier rather than. I don't know. I don't yeah, there's a fair bit of slapstick in this, it. isn't there? I guess. Yeah. So Didn't some of it's quite over. cruel, isn't it? You know, I mean, the, I mean, the yes. doctor's quite, quite kind of blatantly sort of telling Rory that he's the third wheel or whatever. Yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, Simon Knight does do stuff like that, but again, so so might Stephen Moffat. So yeah. you, know, mm. you can't you can't tease these apart. I don't think uh, it's an interesting question. I think this is the thing that is is just what set me thinking about it was just because I I thought. Frankly, given that so much of the Moffat's era is obsessing on 
this character study of the Doctor and like taking apart what it means to be the Doctor and so on. And I was just watching this and Toby Jones's lines and just thinking, this really does such a brilliant job of taking apart and analysing the Doctor. Mm. You know, that it's almost renders a lot of what follows then redundant, you know, in in the later Moffat era redundant. It's kind of, it's you know, so much of it is actually said said right up front here. You know, all the stuff True. with him kind of constantly moving on, having, you know, abandoning, abandoning his companions, leaving them when they've all grown up and all of this stuff. It's a such strong things about the Doctor that it seems like a very bold thing for a visiting mm. one-off guest writer to do. Yeah. Mm. And especially, and half the things it says wouldn't you just wouldn't know if you weren't a most most massive Doctor Who fans wouldn't think to write this um, something with this that gets into the Doctor's self-loathing and mm. insecurities in this way. Mm. I just I can't believe. It. I don't say that Simon Nye isn't a good enough writer to write this. I just by this point he'd written many many programs since Men Behaving Badly and got into comedy mm. drama and um and all sorts of different styles and tones but there is a sort of style running through his work i don't think it's really relevant whether or not he could have written this mm. on a superficial level but it just seems so he might have come up with the elements like the i know have funny old people mm. have a weird village where the old people are, are, are spooky and have things coming out of their mouths that's the sort of thing a visiting guest writer without a deep grounding doctor who might come up with but not, I know who you are. Mm. There's no only one person in the universe who hates me as much as you do. Mm. That seems like a strange thing that anybody would think Doctor Who was about. What people, th- what people who don't watch Doctor Who think Doctor Who is about is, <laughs> you know, is slobbery green aliens running up and down mm. corridors. I, so I guess that's that's the yeah. thing that's suspicious to me. Unless you know Moffat and Simon, I had very long in-depth discussions mm. Uh, mm. before that led to this, which is possible. But that's not to mm. say that it might. It, it could all have been intact, mm. and that might be a Moffat line. Yeah, for for argument's yeah. sake, I, that he mm. he might have punched up the. Uh, tension I guess it just conceptually it feels like such a thing that comes from the place of a you know it it feels like the work of a let's call it a fan turned professional, as it were in terms of you know it comes from someone who is deeply steeped in steeped in the law of Doctor Who and and has thought about all this stuff. And if that's the case, and you had a, a writer of Simon Nye's quality who who is another one, unbeknownst to us, who is another Moffat RTD, you know, Gatiss, Chibnall, another one on that level. Yeah. But it, feel, it feels like if that was the case, then why wouldn't he have wanted another crack of the whip, as it were? And like Neil Gaiman came back for seconds, for instance. I think, I mean, yes, I feel like Simon and I could have come up with the idea that the villain is a, a god, being with godlike powers mm. that can put you into a dream world yes. and, and stands <laughs> and watches and laughs. That's the sort of thing somebody mm. without a deep grounding in science fiction but a, a good imagination might come up with. Mm. It's that leap to the godlike being actually being the doctor, mm. the twist. And it makes me wonder if at an early stage the story could be fundamentally the same. Um, structurally, without that twist, hmm. that that could be something that somebody else might look at it and think there's, it needs to be something more to this. This dream world's a bit hackneyed. It'll work well, but I think it needs an extra twist to hmm. really give it a kick at the end. 
But you know, yeah. this is this is unproductive. This discussion. Yes, yeah. It feels it's like because it's all great, isn't it? What we ended up with, no matter who wrote mm-hmm. it, it's fantastic. Toby Jones, perhaps the Doctor and hence Matt Smith has to take a back seat to allow the, uh, the Dream Lord to make an impact. And by golly, he does for mm. me. Oh. It's a bold, it's a bold thing, isn't it, to to describe your new leading <laughs> actor and the. The, the characterization he's produced as a, as a being full of tawdry quirks, mm. but I mean it is actually, you know, I mean there's something to be said for it. Yes, it's yeah. odd, isn't it? Because I was reading an article discussing the changing character of the Doctor, which looks at some of the ways in which the two Moffat Doctors are slightly different to others. Mm-hmm. In that, most of the Doctor's gauche behaviour. The way he doesn't interact with humans in a way that you would if your main priority was having them respect you mm-hmm. and understand you. And if you felt the Doctor's always been eccentric in one way or another. But here, starting with the 11th Doctor, who seems to have, in some of these stories, to have completely forgotten all the social niceties. That's something that comes on, isn't it, in the James Corden episodes and maybe yes. and some, of the, some of the stories where he meets Clara's family, I think, where he's being, it just gets pushed further and further and further. And suddenly he, he's not just behaving oddly because he doesn't care what people think, which is the fundamentally the way he's been for ten incarnations. Now he seems to have completely forgotten, mm. despite his thousand years of experience, <laughs> <laughs> what humans want and expect. So that's a strange twist. Mm. And again, um, in a similar sense, the Twelfth Doctor's apparent not understanding of social niceties. Mm. Tawdry quirks. <laughs> Considering the Doctor's going to characterization is going to go more in that direction, where you could argue that his tawdry quirks are going to be turned up to 11 yeah. and presented as something that he's not conscious of, whereas previously he's been doing them for effect, and probably, you know, most notably with, say, the, the fourth Doctor. Mm-hmm. It seems like a strange point to write it into the story that it's something he is conscious of and... Mm doesn't like about himself mm. it feels like it would have fitted with any of the previous doctors but matt smith early in his career seems aware that he's, ex- he's a man who is of forced eccentricities and yet just a few stories later well maybe the next season he's the complete opposite discuss mm. or don't <laughs> i think or move swiftly uh, on <laughs> we get all that information or that critique from the dream lord yeah. at a point where we don't know it's the doctor it casts a light on on that version of the Doctor in a slightly uncomfortable way. Hmm. In the way that I don't like it when somebody comments how the TARDIS always turns up when there's danger. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just a TV show. Just leave it, move on. <laughs> don't comment on the format of the of the program <laughs> in universe. It's really uncomfortable. Yep. It's dangerous. But then, when the Dream Lord turns out to be the Doctor, that makes it even weirder, as you say, because we then know that not only is that a critique of the interpretation of that Doctor by that actor and production department, costume department, etc., but it's it's <laughs> in an in-universe sense, as you say, the Doctor has chosen to be all those things, and how are we meant to feel about that? <laughs> Confused is the answer. Mm. Yeah. All affectation, all self-aware, all he knows that he looks like a nutty professor and is being weird. Mm. It's a strange... It only works if it is, if it really is at a subconscious level. And he, yeah. never, he never thought that before consciously and he never does again. Mm. 
and it's mm. I still think that's slightly odd even for a hu- for a human but maybe time lord brains um, are so devious that it, it's <laughs> it's plausible that he thinks this on some level that is so completely hidden buried and it's nice that in that scene the dream lord is basically wearing the doctor's costume yes it's <laughs> a, a neat little thing he's got a tweed mm. jacket and a bow tie on and it's a nice yeah. little foreshadowing I think it's quite clever that they set this idea very firmly, very quickly, that one of these scenarios is a dream and the other one isn't. Because the thing that keeps you guessing is not so much that either of the scenarios seems more real, but I suppose the fact that that whenever you sort of start to feel that one of them must obviously be the dream, then the other one gets more bizarre. You think, oh, actually, I'm not sure I believe in that one either. And if if you had the sense that actually they they both could be dreams from the very outset, then yeah, that would be a, a sort of fairly obvious conclusion to draw. Mm. Now it's very cleverly balanced, isn't it? Mm. And yeah, yeah, they don't cheat. When the, the scales start to shift back in towards possibly the TARDIS scenes being fake, and there's a discussion about the fact that science makes no sense and you can't have a cold sun or whatever. Mm. I guess it's thrown in for, there for people like Giles and Gav, <laughs> but <laughs> it might be looking. No, we, we've we've been asked to accept moon eggs, so cold suns. <laughs> not we've yet. had a sentient well, sun, haven't we? But I know that's not. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's endothermic, presumably. But I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of endothermic reaction would give you light but no heat. Mm. It doesn't, it doesn't cheat, does it? Because in the, hmm, in any other era, we'd think the village stuff can't be true because we've gone forward five years, and that doesn't happen in Doctor Who. Mm. But now it does. So that that suddenly that's on. The TARDIS scenes feel much more real, but then they throw in some bollocks science and they mm. hang a lantern on it. This science appears to be bollocks, Doctor. Is it real? I don't know just because I haven't seen... So they don't insult your intelligence. They don't try and cheat. Um, and the fact that the, they don't they appear at one... Yeah, back in the village again when the alien threads are revealed, Doctor runs through a list of reasons why this seems like the typical sort of thing that would happen to him mm. um, <laughs> in the TV series, Doctor. Sorry, in his life. <laughs> so it's, it really stays just the right sense of, of knowing, mm, yeah. of discussing the format. I think it's very cleverly written. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to slightly contradict myself. I don't object to that in a knowing and amusing way. I worry about it when writers feel that the concept of the show has to be justified or explained in any serious way. Mm. But yes, a nod and a wink. I mean, like the, the the end of the cold open is a perfect example because he says something like, this is going to be a tricky one, virtually to the camera and smiles hmm. and then straight into the title sequence. And I think that's great. I like that. I'm happy with that. The reason I think this is fantastic is because is it does everything well. I mean, it's not actually one of the funniest stories, oddly enough. Um, there are many that yeah. have better jokes, mm. but it's, it's very witty, very sharp. The dialogue is extremely sharp. And I think it also justified and paid off the love triangle thing, which I wasn't particularly keen on. Mm. Mm. I was thinking yet again, uh, watching it, whether or not that's just me being squeamish and old school and, and oh, icky, don't want romance and doctor, or whether it's a perfectly justifiable scenario, because, you know, the new series, more real, the companions would fancy these doctors that we're presented with. It was more fake back in the old series when they didn't. Of course, they'd be absolutely fascinated by this man. And now I suppose this is the next step. That a companion who had a love life already had a boyfriend, mm. like a real person would. <laughs> Unlike your typical Doctor Who companion who has no family or love <laughs> yes, interest or they're anything. They're all orphans. 
of course this is the next logical step what would how could anybody else live up to this so yeah it is mm. well worth discussing i think it was probably just was it the bit that was tacked on to the end of one story um is it the end of the vampire story where they amy jumps on the dog no, no that's, the 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 the, uh, that's the end of the angels. angels oh god is it yeah i think it's just that one tiny little bit that, that spoiled it all for me yes no. but watching this out of context it seems like a very valid subject to explore and it does it extremely nicely and it's very moving i love the bit where amy asks the doctor what is the point of you mm. that's a very fair question but it breaks my heart mm. i think the reason that they could lean into it more heavily and it not be too uncomfortable was because the doctor was a essentially he took a back seat in that love triangle in that it's mm. it's all about amy's fixation on mm. him yes yes of course and if we were to compare that to 10th Doctor, Rose and Mickey, there is the sense that there is more love on the Doctor's part and therefore it would be a much more uncomfortable scenario. Mm, yeah. But the fact that the, the 11th Doctor is just completely passive mm. works really nicely because he's just like in the eye of this storm That's a very good trying point. to negotiate mm. his way through these human It is actually done better for my taste mm. so I don't know why yeah. this is more controversial the Doctor mm, Amy yeah. and Rory than Doctor Rose and Mickey. Yes. Well, hmm, was mean, it? I yeah, don't know. Well, and sequentially, it's quite well worked out because was it more controversial? Yeah, I don't know. I was wondering. I don't remember it being more controversial at the time, particularly. But then, compared to the, I spent far too much time on this talking about what I remember other fans saying at the time. Mm. I should just completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, whether I remembered rightly or not, it's completely irrelevant. I should stop. No, that. no. And just, just thinking you know, compared to all the accusations of soap opera that surrounded series one. Mm. And two, mm. I just had the impression people had kind of got used to the idea that that was going to be a feature of it by this stage in things. The controversy was more, I think, around the fact that Amy was so allowed to be so blatant in what she was looking for. And mm. I, I, think, I think that's what upset people. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily badly written, mm. but... yeah. And specifically moments where she behaved like a character from a Stephen Moffat sitcom. Yes, yeah. Than, yeah, yeah. It's not you just did. that she wasn't doing things that a, a nice prim Doctor Who companion mm. should do, but she was do, doing things that, like a character from Coupling, mm. for example. Or, mm. so. yeah. Anyway, Charles, you were trying to say something. I was only going to say it's quite nicely worked out because having since we did Vampires of Venice a few episodes back, or many episodes back, but we, you know, obviously it uh, does yes. go from we do go from the Angels two part that ends with the ends with the snog. Mm-hmm. And then, then straight from that to the Doctor goes and fetches Rory and leaps out of the cake and takes him off to mm-hmm. Venice. And as we were discussing in that, Rory has his reaction to the Doctor and Amy being somewhat reminiscent of the Tenth Doctor and Rose in terms of their glee at all their adventures and kind of calls them out on that. Yeah. And then it kind of comes to a head with this. So it's, it's quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, yes, we should draw a veil over the hungry earth and so on, but then they... Then they finally do kill Rory, don't they? At that point. <laughs> yeah, for the, for, the, for the first time. But across these three stories, it feels like it's quite nicely worked out hmm. as a little arc. Well, I think it's all right to kill Rory twice. I think you know, once once in the fake world and then once in in, in a real world. It's it's the other half dozen times that are the problem. Three times really. seems like carelessness. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is one of the things that it is the end of Hungry Earth, is it? 
Yes, yeah. it's the end of yeah, the end of yeah. that two parties where he actually dies. I can't quite remember what happens. Does he get shot by one of the Silurians? The crack just swallows him. He gets shot by a Silurian and then Oh right, and then the crack swallows him. And right. then swallowed up by the crack and disappears and Amy forgets about him because he's gone into the yes. crack. How does he come back? And then he then he comes mm-hmm. back as a Auton. A Roman Auton. Sorry, I got the order of these wrong. In some unknown manner. So this is his first death. This is his first one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Got you. And then we have the real one, as it were. And then. And then it starts a tradition. And then it becomes a bit of a yeah. tradition, I think, in <laughs> series six, doesn't it? We have one in. Yeah. Oh. Doctor's. The Doctor's wife. wife. Yeah. Exactly. Possibly more. I always assumed it was accidental that it happened more than once in series five, mm. and that nobody sort of noticed it, or if they did, they hopes that the audience wouldn't pick up on it and then the audience did pick up on it and it became a thing and a meme and then it got written into the narrative in series six that's kind of how it felt to me at the mm. time but um, mm. who knows mm. Mm. i really like the direction on this i thought it was really well yeah. done particularly it managed to feel like two different the shift of locations is one thing but the tardis stuff there's a an awful lot of tardis stuff and it's handled it seems to be handled very well considering that as i understand it the Series 5 TARDIS was pretty notoriously difficult to, to shoot on, <laughs> I believe, with all these reflections. Because it was shiny. Hmm? Just checking you meant because it was shiny, not because it was so big. They, mm. There's an embarrassment of choices of angles. <laughs> and then the location stuff is great, and I really like all the handhelds. Camera work gives it a um, mm. gives it a nice dynamic feel. And it actually feels like you're getting a decent... It feels like that story gets a decent crack of the whip as being a siege story alien invasion story in its own in its own little right and okay it's mm. it's not there to doesn't have to hold the whole thing together but it, it feels it's a convincing enough reconstruction of what a what a traditional doctor who story would be like that again it, it remains plausible now you couldn't you certainly couldn't do what i'm about to suggest in 45 minutes and it may not be as good as this anyway but an alternative version is where they were able to present two pastiche Doctor Who stories to choose between which is the fake and which is the real rather than here you know one pastiche and one mm. which is by default is assumed to be the real one because why would you set a story in a you know this is real it's like mm. the bit between the stories if you see what I mean. yeah. it's yeah. on stage <laughs> hmm well when we get the dream world back which we will yes. um, when I have anything to do with it which means we, we won't. Once you've muscled RTD out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> Toby Jones was a was a big piece of casting at this point. Mm. He was in what was it called? The play What I Wrote, I think. He was the the thing that was it was in the West oh, End. Oh, the Morecambe Wise, yes. It was it was like a sort it was sort of a Morecambe Wise mm. thing, although it wasn't really. Uh, and I think he was—he sort of emerged from the audience in the towards the end of that, or in the middle of it. So he was the critic, or something. Ah, right. That was—that's certainly why where I first came okay. across it. It was a Kenneth Branagh thing, wasn't it? He was involved somehow. Did he direct it? Possibly. Hmm. And after this, he would go on to be a, a really big name, of course, going on to do the hmm. Marvel films and the Jurassic World. <laughs> Yeah, he was really at the start of his um, he was at trajectory, the start off into of a, his... becoming a Hollywood yeah. legend. Yeah, mm. it would have been a, a a really big coup if they'd got him some years later. <laughs> yeah, that was seamless, wasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> hey, 
He's Little... great. He's a great actor. Mm. I think yeah, you yeah. haven't seen him in Uncle Vanya, which uh, was the stage play which the BBC um, showed a version of. Do please see it. It's terrific. Mm. So I, I was watching this at one point, and I was beginning to say to myself, "Have I have I mucked this up?" Because I mean, essentially, the mind robber is about <laughs> the world of fiction, right. and this and this is about dreams. But I think, yeah, I, I, I could think, spot that. Uh, but I think there is a sense in which there's, you know, it, it's unclear what's real and what's fantasy in both of them. Are you telling me that when you first suggested this link, you thought that they were more strongly <laughs> allied, no, no, more I, similar I, than they actually are? No, well, I didn't like to say at the time. I had a wobble in the middle of it, and then I thought, <laughs> no, I mean, they, there is still this thing that they've both got fantastical elements in them, regardless of the fact that one of them is portrayed as being a world mm. of fiction, and the other one is, is, is a world of dreams. I mean, well, for, I was going to say that you're, an, you're insane for Lincoln and <laughs> because in, in, the, in the mind robber, they know, they never for a moment think, aware, think is this real, is, mm. is this just fantasy? They know well, that's, that, no, that's not true, because in episode one, they both, both Zoe and Jamie think that they're genuinely home for some bizarre reason. Mm. That's true. But that, that's not the story that was originally written, of course. When do they first work out that it's a, a land of fiction in the mind robber? The doctor works it out when he realises that Gulliver... Is that is the, it Gulliver? Is that it? Yes, yes, the Gulliver. Because that's a way in, isn't it? Although he never actually comments on who the children are. Who are they supposed no. to be again? Are they from any Nesbitt? I think generic e Nesbitt yeah. characters. Nesbitt-ish, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. But I, I, I would defend the link slightly. They're not dreams, really, in Amy's Choice, are they? I mean, no. not in the sense that they're not really asleep. It's a not not a natural thing, and it's a shared it's a shared hallucination. It's a shared fiction, and it is being controlled and shaped mm. by an outside mysterious. And I think I'm right in saying you you hear the the voice of the mysterious outside agent oh, first yes. mm, so in Amy's do. choice. Good one. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm happy with this as a conceptual link. Yes. Constructed reality kind of thing. Constructed reality. It's a completely different genre, isn't it? Yes, the sort of virtual reality, or part of that genre of people not knowing that they're in a, which is yeah. very big in the cinema, mm. most of the previous decade. Mm. I've also written this thing that says lucid dreams or awareness of fiction. So in both cases, they start to talk about the sense in which there's an uh, there's an unreality happening. It's not it's not a dream in the sense of you think it's real. Mm. Either in Amy's choice, they're clear fairly early on that, that there's unreality in it. You do have a somewhat similar sort of threat over the over the you know threat hanging over them in terms of like the fictionalization being the thing that if they're written into the story in the mind robber, whereas in this it's equivalent. There's yeah. a sort of equivalent to dying in the yes, yeah. Oh, hang on, it's the opposite. Maybe, <laughs> well, maybe it's the, the opposite, world. but um, that's what that's a consummation devoutly to be wished. Mm. Mm. I think there's uh, there's also a false dilemma. I mean, there's certainly a false dilemma in Amy's choice in that you know you're trying to work out well, which one is the which one's real and which one isn't. But possibly also in Mind Dropper, you you know as as you've said, Paul, it's not really a land of of fiction in the end. It's it's mm. it's only the appearance of a land of fiction. Mm. Yes, I suppose it is a. a a virtual reality world, isn't it, of some kind, or a cyberspace? 
to holodeck rather than yeah yes that real yeah. dimension of fiction st- it, it still still hasn't been explored still, it's out there somewhere yes. if somebody yeah. wants to claim it like one thing I completely forgot to mention, I'm sorry Go on, to derail this a bit about links under the mind robber, is that it's been brought back in other media. We don't always do another media section, and maybe this is, I'm about to <laughs> demonstrate why, but has anyone read, <laughs> it's in several new adventures, has anyone read any of those? Conundrum yeah. was the first by Steve Lund, very mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was moaning that Peter Ling, having been idiotic enough to come up with this marvellous concept in the first place, had then, <laughs> had then not explored it thoroughly enough for my satisfaction when I refer to the fact that other people that the sorts what you do with them the sorts of characters you fill it with is down to your personal taste mm. this has been borne out by what other people have done so yes it's in a couple of very good new adventures I think the second one gets quite meta and it's one of the first bits of proper Doctor Who fiction to do that um, I think it includes Doctor Who and his nephew his grandchildren John and Gilliam <laughs> which, right. um, it's the sort of thing I'm not saying the mind robber should have mm-hmm. <laughs> been full of meta stuff, but it's um, an example of where what you can do if you think properly about the things that are genuine. It, it's uh, I think it gets more into multiversal realms if you start thinking about what a proper land of mm. fiction could be, mm. rather than just yeah. a simulacrum controlled by a giant dodecahedron. Mm. And then uh, it's uh, this is when several um, big Finnish stories, notably. I think its first appearance wasn't announced, so it caused a big hoo-ha mm. at the time. It was a big surprise mm. when Jamie and Zoe found themselves back mm. there. So, seek all that stuff out, mm. yeah. people. People who enjoyed The Mind Robber, who inexplicably haven't read The New Adventures or the or listened to these big Finnish stories, do so. Do they treat it, do any of those treat it as a weird, weird alternate dimension, or do they... No, no, they don't. I think it, from what I remember of the ones where I do, (laughs) which I can remember in any detail, there is still the idea that somebody needs to be running Mm. it. So that stays consistent. Mm. I remember that from the New Adventures versions. I can't quite remember what happens in in the big finish. Mm. I know, hang on, I think there might be a big twist in terms of who's running it. Uh, Mm. Yes. But it's really good because um, they play with the fact that it already exists as a concept which the listener will know about. Mm. It does kind of rely on you knowing about the mind dropper mm. and it mm. subverts that by doing something there's a I found a, a rash a good justification for mentioning this mm. it's more like Amy's choice okay they they arrive and have several stories in a row I think which they think are real before they realize they're in the land of fiction ah right so that is much closer mm. to a mind dropper Amy's choice crossover okay but I won't tell you which ones they are, for in case anybody out there mm. hasn't heard them, because I wouldn't no. like to give away the twist. Okay. Sure. Can I just... One other point is... Go on. It's possibly slightly stating the obvious, but from a storytelling point of view, you know, obviously the the title has a double meaning in Amy's choice, and it's, mm-hmm. but it's both the choice of universes and the choice between the Doctor and Rory, and from a storytelling construction point of view... I guess it is quite a nice example of taking a character point or possibly a, a character plot thing that has to be resolved and let's face it, it probably started with the neat idea for the Dream Lord and the and which one of these is the real reality. But it ends up looking like it could have all been constructed so that here is a concrete plot built around this character plot point for Amy that you, you've got this entire thing set up so she's going to have to make a choice is it really life with the Doctor or with Rory that she wants? Mm-hmm. 
coming back to the the links, if we've got nothing more to say on that, I, I, I think in both cases you've got this danger within the TARDIS. So the TARDIS off often in Doctor Who is seen as being a safe location or a place of of safety. Mm. But in both of these, you've you've got the potential of of bad things happening in the TARDIS. There's also the also in both stories, you've got the potential for wondering, do they ever really actually escape in the end? I mean, clearly with Amy's choice, there's an explanation given for for how everything has happened and the, and and how everything could be all right again with the pollen. But equally, if you wanted to to see it as such, you could see that as as being the start of yet another dream, which I suppose then would have to encompass the rest of the series to date. That would explain a few things. It's Chibnall next week, isn't it? Exactly. (laughs) And I suppose similarly, I think it's often been one idea has been that the mind robber has been seen as being perhaps stuff that followed that was all was all part of the fiction Mm. still. Mm. Yes, I've heard that I've heard that theory presented about the mind robber. Because how does the TARDIS come back together again? I mean, it, it just sort of... Well, it's, it's a bit prisoner-esque, isn't it? And where does Emrys James, Jones go, or whatever mm. it is? Is that explained in the invasion? He's just lost in the TARDIS. So there's not even a line... <laughs> chameleon there, for years. About what happens to him, like, like the Gravis. No, the I, th- I thought it ended with a... I thought oh, you've heard a line that, is, that seeded the idea that he, we'll he would be transported to back belong. to where he belonged. Oh, did they right. say that? Oh, boy. I thought so. Oh, it wasn't, mm. I didn't actually watch it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did. It's interesting that this whole thing about the the fact that it, it the, the presence of that episode one on the on the front of the mind robber, it sufficiently muddies the waters in terms of you know that removal from time and space and so on. Compared to compared yeah. to the what Gab was telling us earlier about the somewhat pedestrian. It feels like there's a more logical explanation in the original episode one, as it were, with a magnetic storm, etc., etc. That would have felt far more science fictiony and led us to believe that they could be falling under the influence of a space computer, as it were. Mm. Whereas the you know, yeah, the, the, the yeah. fact that we have this weird off the wall episode one where there really aren't any explanations for anything. No, mm. there's n- there's no connectivity mm. between. The events of episode, the end of episode one and the start of episode mm. two. The, yes, the Doctor puts the thing in that takes the TARDIS out of time and space, mm. fine. They're then in this weird environment. Mm. But then the TARDIS is spinning through space, it explodes, and they are disseminated to the corners of the land mm. of fiction. Mm. There's no sort of connective tissue in that sequence of events. Where it's, mm. just, it's just weird stuff that we're supposed to ignore. Mm. Yeah. But I think it's fortunate that, that that adds the layer of weirdness to the to the land of fiction that possibly otherwise wouldn't be there if it had been mm. if it had been after mm. after running into something yeah. an anomaly that was slightly more dressed up in science that sounds like what was originally yeah. going to be at the start of yeah. hmm. do they call it the land of fiction at any point or is it just like a dialogue, you know this this is like a land of fiction is I or is that just a fan thing don't recall I don't recall hearing it so I don't think so. No. Just Troughton turns to camera and says, I know who this man is. He's a mind robber. <laughs> it's like in, a- in Amy's Choice where he says, it's kind of like Amy's Choice. Mm. It's always good when they say the, when they say the title of the story. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the new Bond film where he turns to camera and says, I've got no time to die. <laughs> Just r- rips off his bulletproof vest and carries on. <laughs> 
No, I don't think they call it the land of fiction. <laughs> the world we've tumbled into is a world of fiction, says Doctor Who at one point. Uh, right, a world of fiction. But that's not the land of fiction, mm. is it? There's never a dimension of fiction. Mm. What do they say in the chase, Gav? I know you've memorised the entire script. When He says, when they this is the chase that we've <laughs> no, I didn't feared I didn't all our lives. That. When oh, right. when somebody suggests that this the, is like the death of Doctor Who, somebody <laughs> says in episode the Ghana, the World's Fair at Ghana, it might actually <laughs> be a. Does he say it's a dimension or a universe or a, a, a fiction? What's what's the oh, phrasing? I'm just interested. Um, I'm now interested in um, the whole business in Doctor Who, whether things are lands, worlds. Well, if you give me a minute to Google it, galaxies, I'll pretend I've remembered. Mm-hmm. Play some holding music, Richard. <laughs> But yeah, I, I wonder if the la- the the land of fiction is. I mean, is is that is that something that appeared in the making of Doctor Who, maybe, or or a, a Jeremy Bentham thing in in Doctor Who Weekly or before? Like, that? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. blame Jeremy. <laughs> it certainly it, it, it <laughs> became an established thing, didn't it? It's your the, mate. Yep. Well, no one says the word fiction in the chase at mm. all. Mm. Uh, <laughs> what do they say? The house is exactly what you would expect in a nightmare. Yes, we're in a world of dreams. Oh, a world of dreams? Oh, well, they are. It exists in the dark recesses of the human minds. Millions of people secretly believing. Think of the immense power of all these people combined together makes this place become a reality. Mm. Apparently. Well, there we go. And then when they've escaped, Ian says, Oh, you know that theory of yours? The doctor says, Theory, my dear boy? Fact, I'm convinced that house was neither time nor space. We were lodged, lodged for a period in an area of human thought, and mm. to which Ian po- rightly points out, and were the Daleks lodging too? <laughs> 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 Doctor, oh, I don't want to enter into yeah. it. Discussion with him. Oh. And, yeah, well, that's that mm. then leads to the... um. Yeah, that leads to the reveal. Fundamentally, we don't know where the mind robber is. If it's another dimension or just another planet somewhere, like, like in the war games where um, they just found a planet, and mm. it, it seems very ethereal at the beginning with all the zones and the mm. fog. But it actually, it's, also, it's apparently just supposed to be a physical arrangement of these zones no, by the, on a mm. yes on a physical on an actual planet that they've commandeered, mm. which mm. makes you wonder what the point is of the. I suppose the fog's just there to discourage people from going from one to the other, mm. but mm. um. You take my point, I'm sure. <laughs> I got confused as to which story you were talking yes, about. Yes, yeah. but the mind robber. By the time we get to them invading Earth, it all sounds boringly physical, doesn't it? Hmm. I'm just, inter- I'm just obsessed with that basic point that individual writers will veer one way or another. Things will be prosaic and physical and three dimensional, and some pe- and others will go completely the other extreme, make things as fantastical and pan-dimensional as they can and that there's no real and that that's what the writers do and then the producer script editor might massage it according to what their taste is but that will change from era to era and there isn't any real consistency the consistency in the show builds up doesn't it, over time as a series of small micro decisions like verity saying no to the chase yes it's more about what they do allow and don't allow which is supposed to set a precedent which can be ignored i don't know it's good isn't it this this story uh, famously had its germination on a British rail train between London and <laughs> Birmingham, <laughs> which sounds like a callback to 
Frank Skinner and isn't as true. <laughs> <laughs> that's where they came up with the idea for the story. I assume that's where you're going. Yeah, yeah right. no, I was hoping I've you would, been... but that is 100% true. Right. It was uh, Peter Ling, Sherwin and Peter Bryant were on a, on a train and they said, wouldn't it be funny if Doctor Who landed in a world of Crossroads characters or something? Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course they, yeah. <laughs> when you said that, I suddenly thought of um, the Feast of Stephen. Feast of Stephen, yeah. Weird, isn't it? Mm. But, yeah. Well, you know, it's an idea whose time hadn't yet come. Sorry, can I just correct myself? It was Derek Sherwin, Terence Dix, and, and Peter Ling. And Frank Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he'd fini- finished the Sensorites, and he was on to Crossroads. Has anyone successfully managed to um, retcon... Dimensions in Time as being an excursion Ooh. to the land of fiction. Bloody hell, that's good. I like it. Ian Levine didn't think of that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I just mentioned Ian Levine. Wasn't it one of the stories that he filmed new bits for to try and make it I think he wanted to try and make some of... giant monster version. No, well, he, he CGI'd mm. bits. There's a, I presume I'm not supposed to have seen it, but there's a bit <laughs> with uh, Colin Baker and the Brigadier mm. have a chat in the helicopter and it's all CGI mm. on their on their way to the uh, they, Greenwich Mean Are, are they time. CGI? The Doctor and the Brigadier with CGI voices? They're CGI. I think the voices are Paul Jones. impersonators. Yes, I think it's impersonators. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Yes. <laughs> well, what a great idea. I've, mm. I've suddenly changed my thoughts on Dimension Time completely and now I think it should be canon. <laughs> if if we can get Emrys Jones back to top and tail it, mm. that sounds mm-hmm. rude. I think we've got to be pretty much running on empty like now. I mean, like yes. most of the rest of the country. Of course. I think so. <laughs> hey. so I think perhaps it's time to, to draw a veil. I mean, thanks to our listeners for, for listening to our thoughts and musings on these two stories. You know, do feel free to get in touch with us to tell us that we're completely wrong as you know some of you are wont to do please we do enjoy i guess hearing what you think about uh, about what we have to say and if you feel moved to to review this podcast particularly if you if you're moved to review it in a positive way that would be great and, and, and help us to to spread the word a little further if that's something good that you could do for us we'll be back no doubt in the next month or so with another couple of stories to discuss and in the meantime thanks for listening and uh, goodbye from me and they're at them too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, as, as, weak, as, as weak as weak as ever. Um, but there we go. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Use that one instead. Yeah. Goodbye. How about these eyes? How about these eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Hmm. I when? Think that might be as. N- <laughs> <laughs> when? <laughs> Maybe. When? I think that might be his nose. We'll have something there. You, you, you threw Jars because Jars was doing his pertwee there, definitely. And he was looking for the exact cue, and you were you troutening away like, <laughs> like nothing on earth. Yeah, I didn't realise I'd actually got I more can't. to say after I'd finished <laughs> failing to improvise. <laughs> and uh, big finish author and missing. Uh, uh, 
Do I need to do a big swear to make it? No, 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 no,